The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled A Visual Exploration of New Targeted Therapies for EGFR Exon 2 Insertions in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, the latest evidence and practical guidance for biomarker testing and individualized treatment selection and sequencing. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AYJ860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hello, and welcome to a visual exploration of new targeted therapies for EGFR exon 20 insertions in non-small cell lung cancer, the latest evidence and practical guidance for biomarker testing and individualized treatment. I'm Posse Yannick from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist and lead our thoracic oncology program at Dana-Farber. In this educational program, we will use dynamic animations to explore EGFR exon 20 insertions in non-small cell lung cancer, as well as the structure, characteristics, and mechanisms of action of newly approved therapies indicated for patients with non-small cell lung cancer harboring these mutations. So EGFR targeted therapies have been developed really over the last 15 years. EGFR mutations were initially discovered in the early 2000s and 2004. Our first biomarker-driven clinical trial really was the IPASS trial that demonstrated that treatment of patients with common EGFR mutant lung cancer with the exon 19 deletion and L858R mutations was greater when an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor was used as first-line therapy compared to chemotherapy. Over the subsequent years, we learned about acquired resistance to EGFR inhibitors. Additional EGFR kinase inhibitors, including covalent inhibitors like efatinib, were developed. And then in 2014 and 15, the third-generation EGFR inhibitors that had activity against EGFR T790M, a common resistance mechanism to first-generation inhibitors, were developed. Since that time, there continues to be development of EGFR inhibitors for other subtypes of EGFR mutant lung cancer, which we will talk about today. In addition, third-generation EGFR inhibitor, osimertinibus have been approved for both first-line therapy based on the FLORA trial showing superiority to early-generation EGFR inhibitors and also approved as adjuvant therapy for patients with early-stage EGFR mutant lung cancer who have undergone successful surgical resection of their cancer. So these are really the three subtypes of EGFR mutations. We have the common subtypes, the exon 19 deletion and L858R mutation. These make up about 85% of EGFR mutations. And here we have several drugs that are approved, erlotinib, gefitinib, efatinib, dacamitinib, osimertinib, and the combination of erlotinib and remesuramab. Osimertinib is the preferred first-line treatment for this subset of EGFR mutant cancers. There's also a second subset, sometimes referred to as the uncommon subset, includes mutations in exons 18 and 21, like G719X, L861Q. And here there's a specific regulatory approval of a FATNIB for this subset of EGFR mutant cancers, although other EGFR inhibitors, including osimertinib, are being examined for this subset of individuals as well. And finally, exon 20 insertions, which are about 5 to 7% of EGFR mutations. And we have two approvals, mobocertinib and amivantamap in this space, with multiple other agents in clinical development, and we will review that in our discussion today. 
Now, in order to match the right therapy to the right cancer, we have to do biomarker testing. Biomarker testing prior to therapy is needed to optimize care for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer in 2023. And biomarker testing includes looking for the expression of PDL1 and genomic alterations in EGFR, ALK, ROS1, BRAF, NTREC, MET, RET, KRAS, and HER2, all of which we have approved therapies for, and it's important to match the most effective therapy to the patient whose cancer is most likely to benefit from the treatment. In addition, in earlier stages of disease, in the adjuvant setting, EGFR mutation testing and PDL1 testing is also important because of specific regulatory approvals for adjuvant osimertinib for patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer and adjuvant atezolizumab and pembrolizumab in patients with PDL1 expressing tumors for atezolizumab or for a broader population of patients with pembrolizumab. The type of testing matters also. Some tests are more sensitive than others. Some can pick up different types of genomic alterations that matters. And I think interpretation of the results is equally as important. You have to know what you're looking for. Biomarker positive is not really enough in 2023. There's a complexity of testing for EGFR mutations, and you really need more granularity. It isn't sufficient to say a cancer has an EGFR mutation versus not. You need to know the details of that specific EGFR mutation. Now, the approved agents for biomarker-positive patients, and you can see the first two lines are for EGFR mutant lung cancer for the common EGFR mutations, exon 19 deletion and LH58R, and then for EGFR exon 20 insertions, amivantamab and mobocertinib, and then the other agents that are approved for the specific alterations. Now, how often is biomarker testing done? A publication from 2022 looked at flat iron electronic health record derived data for patients with non-squamous cell lung cancer and looked at over 10,000 individuals. And biomarker testing was done in about 70% of individuals before administration of first-line systemic therapy, which means that about a third of individuals' treatment starts today without biomarker results, which I think we all would agree is suboptimal care in the era of precision oncology. If you then look at more comprehensive testing, such as next-generation sequencing, these numbers drop even further, or next-generation sequencing prior to first-line systemic therapy, they drop further and only about a third of individuals receive what would be considered standard of care testing today prior to first-line therapy. And you can see there's also some disparities amongst those individuals that get tested. White patients are more likely to be tested than black patients. And this is also something that we as a community need to work on to make sure that everybody is tested with the most up-to-date and state-of-the-art testing prior to receiving first-line systemic therapy. Now, there are factors that go into testing. And in some institutions, reflex testing happens where the pathologist, once they see a lung cancer come across their desk, automatically reflex that to be that tumor from molecular testing. This increases testing rates, decreases turnaround time, and it allows the pathologist to select the best specimen for testing. In many institutions, my own included, molecular testing is initiated by the oncologist. And there, the clinical context can also play an important role into choosing which patients should be tested. The downside is it takes time, and it can take a few weeks to get all of this testing done. If you think about a biopsy and then the test requesting, how long it takes to do the test, targeted next-generation sequencing can take a few weeks to do, and then to get the test interpreted and back to the medical record and back to the patient, 
Sometimes it can take three or four weeks to have the test results and before initiation of first-line systemic therapy. And sometimes there isn't the ability to wait that long because of clinical condition and treatment needs to be initiated even prior to having all the biomarker results back. And that's probably why you see that about a third of patients are started with non-targeted therapy, i.e. chemotherapy or chemo or combination of chemotherapy and immune therapy without waiting for molecular testing results in the United States. Now, let's drill down a little bit more specifically into EGFR itself. The mutations in EGFR that are found in lung cancer are in the tyrosine kinase domain. The common ones are the exon 19 deletion in about 45% of individuals and the L858R mutation in about another 40% of individuals. NCC and ASCO, ESMO, and ISLC guidelines recommend broad molecular profiling, i.e. using next-generation sequencing, because then you can capture all of these different alterations, not just the common ones, but the rare ones like the exon 18 or the exon 20 insertions. There are other molecular testing methodologies, including PCR-based assays, and the advantage of these is that their turnaround time is fast, less DNA is required, and you can detect the common variants. The issue is you miss the rarer variants. You miss the variants that could still be sensitive to a targeted therapy because you're not assaying from them. You have to predefine what you assay for a PCR-based assay, whereas sequencing, you don't have to predefine what you're looking for because you're sequencing a region and any mutation can occur in that region without having prior knowledge of it in your test. Now, what about liquid biopsies? Well, these are rapidly emerging as an alternative to tissue-based genotyping. And there are a few scenarios where liquid biopsy testing or testing of cell-free DNA or tumor-derived DNA is quite useful. First of all, these can be relatively rapid and turnaround time can happen quickly. These can be used when tissue-based testing fails. They can be complementary to tissue-based testing or they can be initiated first. And if they are only positive typically or informative in about seven out of 10 patients with advanced lung cancer or at the time of resistance to a targeted therapy, they can give you an understanding of what resistance mechanisms are happening. Their advantages are speed. Disadvantages that you do not get necessarily the pathologic information. And with pathology, of course, we're increasingly want to now do immunohistochemistry as well for newer generation of drugs like antibody drug conjugates. Another advantage of liquid biopsies, you can do it over time. You can do it at the beginning. You can do it at the time of resistance and it helps you evaluate what has changed. You don't need an invasive biopsy. You can do this from peripheral blood. So there are pros and cons, but it is an acceptable alternative. And and there are, again, indications or clinical scenarios when you would consider doing a liquid biopsy. As I said, it's about 5 to 10% of all EGFR mutations. And the first and second generation EGFR inhibitors really have very little activity against cancers with these mutations. Progression-free survivals in the order of six weeks to two months. And these cancers with these mutations tend to have a worse prognosis than other types of EGFR mutant osmosal lung cancer. Now, exon 20 insertions are not one mutation. They are a range of mutation that happen in a span of exon 20 and what is referred to the C-helix and the loop following the C-helix shown diagrammatically here. And there are at least 20 or 30 different exon 20 insertions. 
Now, there are a few that are more common than others, like the ones in position 769, 770, and 773, but there is no one sort of dominant one that makes up 90% of the exon 20 insertions. And one of the questions that we need to understand is, are all exon 20 insertions created equal? And so far, we know that that is not the case. These exon 20 insertions on the C-helix side, especially this A763, Y764, INS, FQEA, is a type of exon 20 insertion that remains sensitive to some of the first-generation EGFR inhibitors, such as Jafitinib or Latinib or even Afatinib. And whereas the ones in the loop following the C-helix, some specific mutations may have sensitivity to drugs like posiatinib or afatinib, but most in this group, which are the dominant, are resistant to prior generation of EGFR inhibitors. And the pie chart shows you, again, the breakdown, exon 20 insertions, 4 to 10%, exon 19 deletions, 45%, allied 58 r mutation, 40%, and then the other mutations that make up the rest can see that the EGFR exon 20 frequency is about the same regardless of whether you're in the U.S. or Asian country like China. They're about 2.5%. And that's still because lung cancer is quite common, represents a significant number of patients per year, thousands or tens of thousands, again, depending on size of your population. So it is important to identify these mutations because of the therapies that have been developed. Now, detecting EGFR exon 20 insertions using next-generation sequencing, where you can detect all of them, or by PCR, the rapid PCR type of assays. And in red are the mutations that are not detected by commercial PCR kits. And if you add them up, it's about 50% of exon 20 insertions are missed by the commercial PCR kits because you have to define what mutation you're looking for, whereas by sequencing, you can, of course, detect all of these different mutations and not miss any one of them, which of course is therapeutically important as we want the best therapies for our patients and match the most likely to be effective therapy for the patient that's most likely to benefit from that therapy. Now, here are some schematic diagrams of what exon 20 insertions look like wild-type EGFR on the top. And when the wild-type EGFR gets activated normally by an EGFR ligand, this C-helix portion of the receptor gets pushed in and it leads to activation of the receptor. And the different mutations, including exon 19 deletion and exon 20 insertion, do this essentially by two different ways. They also push the C-helix in and activate the receptor. You can see some laboratory-based studies that look at these specific mutations. In the black circles is a common exon 19 deletion. It's very, very sensitive to here erlotinib. In the red triangle is that the rare EGFR exon 20 insertion, the FQEA mutation that's also quite sensitive to erlotinib. In orange, gray, and blue are the representatives or the more common EGFR exon 20 insertions or an EGFR exon 19 deletion with a T790M resistance mutation, and all three of these are resistant to erlotinib. If you look across the different exon 20 insertion mutations or EGFR mutations, you can see the efficacy varies here. And you see that the mutant IC50 in orange is quite high for latinib and jafitinib, and some mutations are sensitive to fatinib, and some of the exon 20 insertions have some activity like the FQEA to osimertinib. And what's key here also is not only at what concentration or relative concentration do you inhibit growth of a cell line model that is an exon 20 insertion, but at what concentration does that happen relative to inhibition of the wild-type EGFR? 
As we know, toxicity from medicines like erlotinib, gefitinib, and afatinib doesn't come from inhibiting EGFR in the tumor. It comes from inhibiting EGFR in the normal tissues, the skin, the gut, and that's why we get toxicities. And osimertinib has the advantage that at lower concentrations, shown in the green bars, you're inhibiting the mutant at lower concentrations than the wild type, and hence you have this mutant selectivity. In contrast to many of these other drugs, in orange, the mutant IC50 is greater than the wild type IC50, meaning that you have to have a concentration of the drug that's greater than the, that required to inhibit the wild type to inhibit the mutation in the tumor. And that means it's likely to be toxic because you're inhibiting wild-type EGFR very well, and hence you can get things like skin toxicity. And again, another schematic depiction of the different types of EGFR exon 20 insertions and a little bit about the relative frequency of those mutations. Now, I mentioned there are two new drugs that have been approved for EGFR exon 20 insertions. The first one was amivantamab, which received accelerated approval on May 21st of 2021 for patients who had progressed on or after platinum-based chemotherapy and had an EGFR exon 20 mutant cancer. The FDA at that point also approved GARDEN 360 as a companion diagnostic, which is a cell-free DNA-based assay to facilitate finding patients with these types of alterations. And a few months later, on September 15th, 2021, FDA granted accelerated approval to mobocertinib for patients, again, whose disease had progressed on or after platinum-based chemotherapy and the Oncomine DX target test as a companion diagnostic diagnostic device for mobocertinib. Now let's look at these two agents in more detail. Amivantamab is a bispecific or dual EGFR-MET antibody. On the left, you can see one arm binds EGFR and one arm binds MET. And it binds the portion of EGFR that sits outside the cell. These mutations, however, sit inside the cell in kind of the engine part of the receptor. And the outside portion is the same of the EGFR, whether or not you have an exon 20 insertion or not. Mobocertinib, on the other hand, is a small molecule kinase inhibitor. It was chemically optimized from osimertinib to be more selective on exon 20 mutants. So it goes into the cells and binds the engine, the kinase domain part of EGFR, where the exon 20 insertions are and or where resistance mutations can also lie. Now let's take a closer look at EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations in non-small cell lung cancer and how mobocertinib and amivantamab work. In non-small cell lung cancer, the epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR, is an established therapeutic target. It's one of a family of receptors that includes EGFR, HER2, HER3, and HER4. Activation of these receptors occurs when a ligand binds the extracellular domain, leading to dimerization with another EGFR receptor or with another family member such as HER2 or HER3. Dimerization produces a conformational change that leads to activation of the intracellular tyrosine kinase domain, allowing ATP to bind for autophosphorylation, which initiates downstream signaling cascades that promote cell proliferation and cell survival. A variety of EGFR mutations are associated with non-small cell lung cancer, and these are almost exclusively found in the tyrosine kinase domain spanning exons 18 through 21. These oncogenic driver alterations change the structure of the ATP binding pocket of the tyrosine kinase domain, causing the receptor to have ligand-independent constitutive activation, which drives uncontrolled survival and proliferation of the tumor cells. Not all EGFR mutations are the same. 
Classical EGFR mutations, such as the LI58R mutation, the exon 19 deletion, cause structural changes to the ATP binding pocket, making EGFR constitutively active. And EGFR kinase inhibitors have been designed to selectively target the altered ATP binding pocket and deactivate EGFR signaling. The drugs compete for ATP binding in the pocket. The exon 20 insertions comprise a diverse group of mutations that add additional amino acids that heavily restrict drug access to the ATP binding pocket. That's why the first-generation drugs don't work very well. Because the drug binding pocket is less accessible, most EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors, such as those indicated or approved for the classical EGFR mutations, have limited clinical benefit for exon 20 insertions because they cannot effectively access the ATP binding pocket. However, there are now two FDA-approved targeted agents indicated for non-small cell lung cancer with EGFR exon 20 mutations, mobocertinib and amivantamab. Mobocertinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor designed with selectivity for EGFR and HER2 exon 20 insertions over the wild-type receptors, and it has an ability to access the restricted binding pocket caused by the exon 20 insertions. Mobocertinib inhibits the kinase activity of EGFR and HER2 and subsequent downstream signaling, which impedes tumor cell proliferation and survival, promoting cancer cell death. Amivantamab, in contrast, is a dual EGFR met bispecific monoclonal antibody that has an FC domain with low fucosylation. The rationale for targeting METs in addition to EGFR include the following. Both are highly expressed in non-small cell lung cancer. They share same proliferative and survival pathways. And resistance to EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors most commonly occurs through alterations of EGFR and or MET. Binding the extracellular domain of EGFR or MET, amivantamab blocks ligand-dependent activation of the receptor and triggers receptor internalization and degradation. In addition, the low fucose FC domain enhances innate immune cell effector function, including antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity, in which natural killer cells are able to eliminate tumor cells, as well as antibody-dependent cellular trogocytosis by macrophages. Collectively, the mechanisms of action of amantamab lead to downregulation of EGFR and MET receptors, reducing tumor cell proliferation and survival, and as such, promoting cancer cell death. Now, what about the clinical data of amivantamab? This is the data that led to the regulatory approval. This was in patients who had previously received platinum-based chemotherapy. The response rate of amivantamab was 40%. The median progression-free survival was 8.3 months. And the duration of response was about 11 months. And color-coded are the different mutations in the different location of EGFR. And you can see there's some variability in the response rate depending on the location of where the mutation is located, although the denominator is still very small. For example, there's only one cancer from the helical region here and only a few from the far loop region. I would say that this is far from being conclusive yet, but it's not clear that there's any one EGFR exon 20 insertion that isn't potentially targetable by amivantamab. So I think this is still a work in progress, but so far it appears to have activity across the different types of exon 20 insertions. Now, amivantamab has some unique toxicities. It leads to infusion-related reactions, most commonly early on in treatment in cycle one, day one of treatment. It's an intravenous antibody. It can lead to a rash because the EGFR antibody detects EGFR both in the tumor cells and in normal cells, and it can lead to paronychia. About over 80% of patients have any grade rash and a minority have grade three or higher rash. It can lead to MET-related toxicities that are seen with agents that target MET, and these include low albumin or hypoalbuminemia, or peripheral edema, both are seen in about 20% of patients. 
in this definitive trial or the trial that led to the regulatory approval, dose reduction occurred in about 13% of individuals and dose discontinuation in about another 10% of individuals. This is sort of the similar data set from Obacertinib. Again, for patients that have received prior platinum-based chemotherapy, a slightly larger data set. As I mentioned, this is a kinase inhibitor. The approved dose here is 160 milligrams. The confirmed overall response rate by the independent review committee was 28%, by the investigator, 35%. The median duration of response is 17.5 months and a median progression-free survival of 7.3 months. Similar kind of color-coded waterfall plot, looking at responses in some of the more common or rare EGFR mutations, the common ones being the ASV, SVD, and NPH mutations, which are in dark blue. And again, you can see activity across the different types of EGFR exon 20 insertions. I don't think there's one that stands out as being definitively more sensitive than another or definitively resistant to mobocertinib therapy. More information is, however, needed in this space to get a better understanding of do either one of these drugs or any of the drugs in clinical development at the moment, are they preferentially effective against one subtype of exon 20 insertions or not? Amobacertinib has a very different toxicity profile compared to amivantamab. The main toxicity is GI and it's diarrhea. And about 90% of patients have any grade diarrhea and about 20% have grade three or higher diarrhea. You can also get some decreased appetite and nausea. You can get some EGFR-related toxicities, rash up to 45%, although none grade three, and paronychia in about a third of individuals. There are some cardiac toxicities, some QT prolongation in patients, and there was a treatment-related death in this study due to cardiac failure. Dose reductions in this definitive study occurred in a quarter of patients and treatment discontinuations in 17% of patients. Now, there are newer agents that are being evaluated and developed. This is CLN081, the novel irreversible oral EGFR inhibitor with exon 20 selectivity. This was presented at ASCO last year. And here, across different doses, which is color-coded here, there is activity ranging, you know, about 38, 40% overall and some differences based on the dosing. Toxicity is mostly EGFR-related toxicity, rash in about 80% of individuals, paronychia in about a third, or very few of these were grade 3 and higher, similarly some diarrhea as well as some fatigue. You can also see the patients who had received a prior EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor for their exon 20 insertion non-small cell lung cancer, and you can see several patients responding even if they've been treated with a prior EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Another drug is called sunvazertinib or DZD9008, another osimertinib analog that has been made into an EGFR exon 20 inhibitor. Response rate also slightly below 40%. Some characteristics of patients, whether they have baseline brain metastases, whether they've received prior amivantamab or poziotinib, and you can see responses in patients with and without baseline brain metastases and whether or not they've received prior amivantamab or poziotinib. Here, the toxicities also include diarrhea, rash, nausea, vomiting, some paronychia, similar toxicities that are mostly associated with wild-type EGFR inhibition that we've seen with the other agents, although the rash is perhaps a little bit lower in incidence here. The toxicities are dose-dependent, and 200 and 300 milligram dose are being evaluated in further clinical trials. 
So if we look at the approved agents and those in development and put them all together, you can see here there are kinase inhibitors or antibodies, their mechanism of action, the number of patients that have been treated. This includes osimertinib given at twice the approved dose at 160 milligrams. The response rates, which range from 15 to 40 percent, median progression-free survivals or duration of responses, again, range from 4.2 to 10 months or so. The key toxicities, what fraction of patients are dose reductions and dose discontinuations. The top two have received regulatory approval. The other four have not for this specific indication. And there are two drugs, LU451 and ORIC114, that are still in clinical development, early phase clinical trials. And we don't have clinical data yet, but this is something to look out for at our upcoming meetings this year and next year to see how these agents also added to the mix. So far, we haven't found the osimertinib of exon 20 insertions. So far, all of these are really second-line therapies, and the question is, will we be able to find something that would clearly make it as a first-line therapy, like we have for the common EGFR mutations where osimertinib is the preferred first-line therapy of choice? Now, mobocertinib and amivantamab are also in phase three clinical trials. There is a phase three clinical trial in the first line setting of amivantamab plus platinum-based chemotherapy versus platinum-based chemotherapy in patients with newly diagnosed advanced EGFR exon 20 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And for mobocertinib in the newly diagnosed advanced EGFR exon 20 mutant non-small cell lung cancer, there's a phase three trial comparing single-agent mobocertinib to platinum-based chemotherapy. We anxiously await the results of these trials, and we hope we'll hear those later this year or early next year, as that will help us understand whether either in combination with chemotherapy with amivantamab or as a single agent, mobocertinib is superior to standard of care, which is platinum-based chemotherapy for this patient population as the first-line treatment and would open potentially the approval then of these agents in the frontline setting, where I think we all as a community would like to see the use of targeted therapies in the frontline setting, not necessarily after chemotherapy. So some practical considerations of amivantamab and mobocertinib. As I mentioned, both of these agents are approved in the second line. They are different in their mode of action and in their toxicity. Amivantamab is intravenous. Toxicity is predominantly infusion reactions and skin toxicity. Mobocertinib is an oral agent. Toxicity is primarily GI toxicity with some skin toxicity as well. What we don't know as a community is, should you start with one or the other and then switch to the other when one develops resistance to the first? one. There are different agents, different modes of action. I think it's a discussion that you have with your patients. You know, one requires coming in for intravenous infusions, one you take at home, but there are, again, differences in toxicities. And I think it's a discussion between you and your patient on the pros and cons of the different agents, the efficacy, which is roughly similar in the second line setting for the two agents. And over the next several years, we'll hopefully learn more about resistance to these agents. And if you develop resistance to one of these agents, can you still be effectively treated with the other agent? Since one is an antibody and one's a kinase inhibitor, it's likely that the resistance mechanisms are going to be different. And at least a priori, no reason to think that you couldn't be treated with, for example, mobocertinib if you 
first were treated with amabantamab and developed progression and vice versa. So these are hopefully some of the things that we'll learn over the next few years. It's an exciting time for development of new therapies for patients with EGFR exon 20 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. There are multiple agents in clinical development, multiple in preclinical development. We hope to find through this process the most effective agent that we can use in the first-line setting that's also effective against patients who have central nervous system metastases. And at the current time, we don't believe that either amabantamab or mobocertinib effectively crosses the blood-brain barrier. So that's another reason to have additional agents in clinical development. And we look forward to the results of the trials of these new agents, as well as the phase three clinical trials of amabantamab and mobocertinib, which are underway, to see how the therapeutic landscape evolves and changes over the upcoming months to a few years. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AYJ860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals, USA, Incorporated.